Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. I got a great email today from Steve. Steve wrote, he said, Franz, I'm a fan of the podcast and want to let you know that the ASA 101 lessons are really helping my girlfriend, Brandy, learn all the proper terms on the boat. Instead of calling Everything this thingy and that thingy, she now is using the right terms most of the time. We listen together in the car and discuss how it relates to our boat, a McGregor 26M. I've also learned a few things I never knew, even though I grew up sailing and racing. Sailing is a lot more fun with a beautiful girl on board that knows how to sail. We started a new sailing podcast a few months ago called The Sailing Road. You can find it in iTunes and Stitcher. And by the way, that's spelled Sailing the Sailing Road, R-O-D-E. And then he goes on to say you can find it on iTunes and Stitcher. Our website is thesailingroad.com, T-H-E-S-A-I-L-I-N-G-R-O-D-E.com. I plan to mention your lessons on an upcoming podcast and explain how they are helping Brandy. We put the link in the show notes. I will let you know when we post the podcast. Hey, thanks. Then he goes on to say, I have a new appreciation for the work it takes to produce a podcast. Thanks for keeping yours going. We are also producing sailing videos of our adventures. I must be a glutton for punishment. They take about 25 hours to produce a 15-minute video. But it is fun work, and we always have them to look back on. Here's the latest video. He gave me a link, and I will post that in our post today. I'm sure we will buy the other programs When we make it through the 101, thanks for putting them together. I also put a review up on iTunes for them. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate that. All right. I'm going to make this a pretty quick introduction. That's pretty much my advertisement for my ASA series of lessons, ASA 101, the 103, the 104. I have a series of audio lessons that are available for you in iTunes, Amazon, and at the website if you are interested in learning audibly. They're not a book. You can get the same information in books from your library for free. But if you'd like to learn audibly, is that a word? I think so. Um, Check them out. All right. I'm going to cut this short because I just want to get this podcast out. This is the first of two interviews with my friend Dan Culpepper about his sailing adventure this summer. He sailed across the Atlantic, and I will let him tell the story. I'm talking with Dan Culpepper from the boat Sailing Heldeline. Is that how you pronounce that? Well, it'll be Heldeline. 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 Yep. Sailing Heldeline. Dan just went on a big adventure. Dan and I met. Uh, he came out. He's been listening to the podcast for a while, and he was visiting Salt Lake. And last winter, he gave me a call and said, uh, let's go skiing together. So we did. So we actually have met face to face, which is great for somebody that does podcasts. It's not too often that you actually meet your listeners. And I really enjoyed that day. 
So it's good to talk to you again. You've been living the dream. Tell me about, well, let's, <laughs> first of all, tell, tell the listeners what you've done, and then we'll go into detail. Well, I took the boat across the Atlantic uh, from Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, boat is now in Italy. And over a period of four months, uh, we uh, got the boat across. And uh, a lot of adventures along the way. But, uh, yeah, a lifelong dream, and uh, it's been in the planning for quite a while. Tell us about the boat. The boat is a Beneteau 50. It's a 2004 that I acquired in 2009. And uh, since then, we've been doing little upgrades to it here and there in preparation. Really, the boat was purchased in, with this trip in mind. So. All right. So your original plan, as I recall, was to sail over and come back. And you, I think I talked you out of that, right? <laughs> well, I don't know how quickly we were going to come back. But, um, uh, yeah, the, the trip was still a, a long schlag. We um, ended up traveling almost 5,000 miles in four months. And I know you're not a big fan of uh, of the voyaging uh, for long distances, um, but it was um, it was enjoyable to us. I mean, I, I do like traveling. I get into that Zen state of uh, of uh, traveling for days on end, and we did indeed do that across the Atlantic uh, for the family when we finally joined up in, in Gibraltar. Uh, a little less so; they don't enjoy the uh, days and days. So uh, we shortened it up a bit, but we still traveled a lot of miles, probably too many. Uh, the boat is now in, in Italy, and our plans next summer are certainly to do uh, a lot less uh, per day and also not have that feeling that we have to just keep moving. And that's kind of the feeling we had. We knew where we had to be uh, by uh, end of August, and so it was really moving the boat along. And, uh, you know, it, it was uh, I, I enjoyed it, but <laughs> it's, not all the crew was happy all the time. Uh, especially the last uh, last month or so, but um, we did get the boat uh, to where it had to uh, to go. So, well, let's start with uh, with the preparations for the crossing. What special preparations did you make on the boat? Uh, and you don't need to go into a lot of detail, but just briefly. Yeah. Well, we've been doing the past few years. Uh, I've taken the boat up to Nova Scotia uh, two years ago, uh, which, by the way, was a fantastic trip. Uh, love to go back there again. We've been all over Maine. Um, East Coast sailor pretty much. Been in Bermuda a couple times in uh, Bermuda race with a previous boat. And uh, so the prep for this boat it, it came in pretty good shape. It, it had the systems, uh, but it had been used um, pretty heavily. Uh, the engine had been used quite a bit. Uh, the boat was five years old when I purchased it, and it already had close to 3,000 hours on the engine, which seemed almost impossible to me. But um, we happened to hook up uh, bizarrely in, in Nantucket with a uh, previous captain of the boat who recognized the boat and they got to talk to him and he said, oh yeah, it was an older guy we purchased it from and he said, oh, we used to motor back and forth to Florida okay, <laughs> so, in a sailboat. Oh. So uh, the uh, jib was barely used. Uh, I, I think once he bought the boat, he realized that uh, he preferred uh, a motorboat and so motored the boat a lot. Uh, the systems had air conditioning on it, but they were pretty much rusted up by the time we got the boat, so we never really used that. Um, the batteries were, were basically at the end of their life. So a lot of that previous year, the previous year, last year, uh, going into the trip was, was filled with systems. I mean, getting the boat so that it was obviously first safe and secure, and that involved hauling the boat out. Uh, taking the rig down, 
checking, die testing all the, uh, the various turnbuckles and the actual wire itself, and then putting it back together again, checking uh, everything through holes while the boat was out of the water, checking all those systems, and then uh, getting into the engine, which seemed to be fine, just a lot of hours, a uh, little nip and tucking around, and then dealing with the batteries and the power. And that involved pulling out all the batteries on the boat, and I was doing this all myself, pretty much, with help from uh, my uncle and, uh, you know, a friend here and there. But it was a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, schlepping very heavy batteries back and forth and uh, loading them in. Taking them out was probably more of a pain than putting them in. And I replaced the house batteries uh, fully. So um, they had four 8D batteries in there, uh, each one 245 amp. So it had a lot of uh, capacity, and I ended up putting in the same amount. So my house bank has almost a 1,000 amps of potential, uh, a couple batteries for the uh, aft winches, a couple batteries in the bow for the bow thruster uh, and the windlass, and then a, a little starter battery, So, uh, which seems kind of redundant, but you can tap in the whole system if you need it, and as you know, having power is a good thing. So. Uh, I added, uh, you know, I kept basically what was there, but just upgraded it all to new batteries, uh, put a new charger inverter in to run the system and, uh, added two solar panels, which was fantastic. Just the whole idea of it is just so cool. It's, uh, like free power. The whole idea of it seems like magic to me and, uh, worked great. And I have a generator aboard, eight kilowatt generator. So servicing that, servicing the main engine, uh, getting the ability to power the systems that were aboard the boat and um, after the safety issues and making sure the boat was sound, uh, which it pretty much was. And uh, so that was basically it. That, it, took a, it took just a long time of uh, uh, little things here and there, uh, little uh, irritating things that would happen uh, aboard the boat. But, of course, that's uh, boat ownership. If you don't enjoy doing that, you shouldn't own a boat. Right, Franz? That's absolutely right. <laughs> I was actually I mean, talking to somebody the other day about that. If, if you don't like solving problems, don't buy a boat. Exactly. And especially a sailboat. I mean, there are going to be problems. And we had little issues on the way over. But uh, all that prep work was, um, I mean, we paid benefits. I mean, the, the idea that we, um, we were going to run into things, uh, have issues, and being prepared for that. And, and I'm kind of fanatic about some lists. And I have a list for scenarios and various things that could go wrong, uh, my little uh, red book. And, and we tended to just go down those things and, and just thinking out those scenarios, as I'm sure you have in the middle of the night, you just think, what if the rig goes down? What if this happens? What if this happens? And then you end up generating lists from that and trying to go down it. Now, you're not going to prepare for everything. Things happen. Even totally prepared people, bad things happen. So we just tried to be as prepared as we possibly could uh, aboard the boat. And, and, it, and it ended up being a good trip that way. I mean, not too many things failed. And what failed was uh, a line parting from, from uh, chafing at the top of the mast, uh, things like that, which is just kind of maintenance and, you know, learn your lesson kind of thing, but nothing catastrophic. So the boat was pretty well prepared by the time we left. All right. So when did you leave? Uh, left the early part of May. We were supposed to leave May 9th, the Saturday, but we pushed it ahead uh, only by about 12 hours. We left in the middle of the night on the 8th uh, because, and you might not remember this, but there was a tropical storm coming up the coast. 
uh, called Anna. And uh, they didn't know what was going to, whether it was going to develop into something. But at this point, at on the 8th, 7th and 8th, uh, it was just lingering off of Florida and then kind of came up the coast and got stuck in North Carolina, right right there where a lot of the storms get caught. And we so we had a choice. We were going to sit and wait for a few days or make a run for it. And we decided to make a run for it, which ended up being a good decision because the storm kept, you know, it was kind of stuck there in North Carolina, stuck, stuck, stuck. We kept watching it, kept being stuck. We took off from Stanford, went down through New York City. So we went down the East River and uh, through New York Harbor and out. And by the 10th, we were getting out past uh, uh, Sandy Hook and we were out a ways. And by the 11th, we were pretty much out into the Atlantic, giving us some space. The storm became unstuck probably on the 10th, moved its way roaring up the coast. Uh, At that point, we were out far enough away. We got on the other side of the storm. And the storm tended to hug the coast, which we were hoping it would do and not go out, <laughs> as they say, don't you love this front? And they say that it goes out safely out into the ocean. <laughs> and so we were hoping it wasn't going to go safely out into the ocean, staying safely on land for us. And it did. It hugged, hugged the coast. We got a, onto the other side uh, a ways enough away that, that our winds were probably... I didn't get any higher than in the mid-30s, which was probably enough for us, but it was coming from a decent direction, and the seas hadn't really chunked up because uh, we had, you know, we were pretty well in, in peaceful seas until the storm came up. So the seas hadn't gotten a chance to build. We had a lot of wind, but uh, in a good direction, and we got to Bermuda um, about four and a half days from Stanford, about 700 miles. So we were, we were booking along, and, and uh, not much wind the first day, uh, till the storm got up there, but we uh, we motored. We just made haste. We had to had to get out. And we did. It worked out well. So you got on the right side of the tropical storm then. Yeah. Well, we got on the yeah we got on the east side, but we were far enough away from the killer zone that the winds were uh, were were strong, but but consistent, and 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 they decreased as we were heading into Bermuda. So it it was. At its worst, it probably peaked in the high 30s, uh, but then it, it was a very nice and comfortable 15 to 20 uh, going into Bermuda. It was actually a, a wonderful trip by the time we uh, uh, we got into it, but uh, obviously we were concerned the first couple of days uh, where the storm was. Okay, so were you bucking the Gulf Stream then heading to Bermuda? Uh, a little bit. Uh, again, the Gulf Stream worked in our favor. We got one of the meandering uh, currents. And that actually helped us too. We uh, we peaked out. We had a couple waves surfing down over twelve knots. So uh, it was a it was a a good ride. As it, as it always is in the middle of the night when the winds are up and you can't see a lot of stuff, it always makes for an exciting uh, evening. But uh, and we had uh, the crew. I had uh, one guy, especially Tom Mayo, tremendously experienced uh, sailor from uh, your neck of the woods, and uh, comes out from. Uh, Let's see, it's Park City. I think he's where he's from. And, and he's uh, a, a terrific sailor, terrific guy. And it worked out well. And I, I found him on a, on a cruise search site. And uh, he and also Pierre, the other crew member uh, that I had on the way to Bermuda. Also, I had a good friend of mine, Eric Wenberg, who went along. So it was four on the first leg to Bermuda. And the guys were uh, the guys were terrific. I could not have picked better. It was, it, you know, it's, it's a little like online dating. 
<laughs> they're picking the crew members. Uh, I haven't had that experience, thankfully, but uh, this was a very, um, uh, it was a, a great experience. I, I just put my, my trip on this uh, website uh, and I had just had dozens of emails every day. It was really amazing, uh, the interest. And of course, a lot of them are not people I would necessarily want to go offshore with. And, uh, but through that, that search, I, I found Tom Mayo and Pierre Pouvenage from uh, Quebec. And it was, uh, they were terrific. One guy, uh, Tom's about my age, mid-50s, a lot of experience uh, sailing early on, and then ended up going into uh, airline. Uh, he was a pilot in the airline with Southwest Airlines. And, um, and Pierre was, uh, works for a company as an IT guy. And it, it, as a product manager, and he knows everything about computers. He's a young guy. So the two of them were a perfect crew because uh, the fill in the weaknesses here and there, I had a guy I could trust on watches immediately right off the bat, which was Tom. And then Pierre ramped up very quickly, smart guy, and uh, also can run all the systems. I got the, uh, the satellite phone working and all these niddling little uh, computer stuff because, you know, as you know, trying to do anything through the satellite phone with a computer uh, ends up being uh, just <laughs> agony for me. And, well, that's, uh, that's beyond my level of uh, – I don't right. have either a satellite phone, and I do have a computer, but it's a very old computer on my boat. So you've got much more elaborate systems than I do. So. Well, I tried to make it as simple as possible, but these days, uh, you know, good luck with simplicity if you want to – uh, you know, I wanted the ability to send text or send send uh, email if I could, but it wasn't critical because I had an Iridium uh, uh, Reach system in Reach, it's called, and in, and it's a it's a tracker, but it also has a little uh, you know tweet capability to it where you can send you know 140 150 ca- uh, uh, characters by you know through the Iridium system. So that was actually how I did updates, and everyone could check. I had a website. People could see where we were by the tracker, and they could also send comments, and we could respond. And it was all with a, with a monthly fee of, I think it was 50 bucks or something a month. So it was a terrific way of, of communicating. And we realized that that's how I could do it. And, uh, but the satellite phone I had... And I got from a friend of mine we had used for Bermuda Race. I figured, okay, I'll take the satellite phone too. But of course, as you know, it starts, <laughs> you have a satellite phone. Oh, what can we do with it? We can not just talk. We could also do an email. So, so Pierre was fantastic for that because uh, he was able to uh, get the software to talk to the phone and set up little, you know, simple ways where I could walk up to the computer in my stupidity uh, in the middle of the night and just uh, click on an icon on the main main screen would open up the mail. So it was, uh, uh, my crew was was terrific, really terrific. Eric Wenberg, uh, the other crew member, the fourth one, had never really been sailing before. So <laughs> I, I give him credit. It was really, uh, really terrific. He had taken two sailing lessons in the previous couple of weeks before before the trip, but he had that adventurous, uh, adventurous spirit and was uh, willing to do it. Got to give him credit. Uh, he had a, I think he had a great time the the last two days. Uh, the first couple of days were, uh, he uh, yeah he was feeding the fish a bit, uh, doing the rail dance, and uh, and he's my first crew member who actually has had an issue with the uh, patch, because uh, since we had and this is my fault, we, uh, all the guys were going to take a patch the night before we left, which we generally do on these long trips. 
And uh, I have never had an issue with a crew member uh, with the scopolamine patch. You put one behind your ear, seems to have been working uh, a miracle for the past number of years. But uh, some put, them, put it on the night before, but of course we left the night before. And it should be on for 12 hours or overnight for it to really be effective. And Eric took it the night, the night before, but of course we bumped it up, left, and he wasn't feeling well the first day. So, unbeknownst to me, he added another one <laughs> to the other side. And then that didn't work. He was feeling awful the next day, and he took a suppository of it. And, and pretty soon, he was so loaded with, uh, with a medication, I, I think by the second day, uh, we had an interesting night watch in which uh, he, um, I was at the wheel, and he was uh, you know, underneath the Dodger. And he looked at me and said, Dan, Dan, do you see the black cat? And I said, I said, What? He said, the black cat, there it is. And he starts pointing at the black cat and he's, and it's walking around the back of him and he's pointing at it. He's looking in behind him, walking around the deck. And it, it was absolutely hilarious in one level and, and frightening on the other. I said, are you okay? And uh, he wasn't feeling any pain at that point. Uh, he was having a very nice uh, vision of a black cat in the middle of the Atlantic. So it, uh, it was the first time I've had that happen. And, and of course, now we realize that he was probably tripled up with the medication. And, uh, but I got to tell you, what a great crew member. I mean, he was just getting up and doing what he had to do at all times, uh, even not feeling well. He was sitting doing watches, and uh, it was pretty impressive. But uh, fun stuff. Now, did you pay these, or were they all volunteer crew members? All volunteer, all volunteer. So, uh, yeah, even better. Yeah. So, uh, and a great attitude. And, uh, yeah, I, again, I, I could not have uh, picked better. And it was just uh, luck of the draw. Well, however it worked out, these are going to be uh, lifelong friends. We've uh, stayed in contact. And, and every once in a while, Tom will give me a call. We'll sit and we'll talk. Hours will go by because uh, I spent a lot of time with him prior to the race talking about preparation, you know, him asking questions. Does the boat have this? Does the boat have that? What would we do in this circumstance? What would we do in that circumstance? You know, bouncing ideas off of each other. And, and it's just great having another, you know, brain to just, just compare notes to and, and having a guy with experience. So it was, uh, it was great. All right. So you went to Bermuda. Yep. And then from Bermuda, were you, um, were you being routed by weather, uh, any weather services, or were you making your own weather forecasts? Yeah, we used Commander's Weather. Uh, which we've used uh, before on 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 other trips, uh, and uh, and they're good. Uh, generally, they're good. They're they're good on offshore, better than they are uh, close in uh, to shore. We had some issues up in Nova Scotia, but it's a more challenging area in terms of uh, weather forecasting. Uh, yeah, we use Commander's Weather, and then when we got to Bermuda, we joined the ARC Europe and um, uh, took that trip across from from Bermuda to the Azores. And, uh, I mean, we get into talking about the ARC. Um, I, I'm not quite um, uh, fully aboard with them. I know you've uh, interviewed Andy and uh, Shell. Uh, you know, there are, there are people who are rally people and people who aren't probably. And I might end up in that latter category of, uh, of you know, the parties. Uh, a lot of the – listen, it wasn't all, it wasn't all the ARCs. Uh, issues. It was more from my end. Uh, we joined up in Bermuda. We didn't get a chance to do the uh, BVI part of it, so we missed some of the parties. And uh, I'm not really a party guy, but uh, by the time we got to Bermuda, the crews kind of knew each other. And then we were only there for that, that middle section. So financially, it probably didn't make sense to join the ARC. But I could see starting from the beginning, you start to get to know people. But we were kind of the odd man out a little bit. We didn't really know 
uh, too many people at that point. So, and so it's sort of like going to high school uh, your junior year then, right? Exactly. And in, and leaving at the end of your junior year. Right. So <laughs> it, it's kind of what we ended up ended up doing. And in, in hindsight, we probably wouldn't have. But listen, it made my wife feel better um, and family feeling like we were going to uh, be with a, a large group who would come and save us. But <laughs> as you know, uh, we left with 46 boats from Bermuda. And by the next morning... But we didn't see another boat mm-hmm. and we didn't see another boat for 14 days. So uh, and then when we did see two boats, actually on radio, we talked to two boats along the way. We did not see them. They were probably over the horizon a little ways. Uh, neither uh, was part of the uh, ARC. <laughs> so after all of that, uh, 40, uh, 45 other boats were, uh, but we never uh, contacted them, even closing in on on Horta. Uh, in the Azores, we uh, we saw a lot of other boats, and very few were part of the ARC because it really is a migration time, and a lot of boats are making that crossing at that time. And uh, so, anyway, so that the experience with the ARC was very limited on our end. Okay, so. now you had to pay to. I mean, what do you have to pay to to do the <laughs> ARC rally? That's pretty expensive, isn't it? Uh, see, that that was the issue. That was the issue. I had to pay for the crew. Had to pay for the rally itself. Uh, I mean, it. I, I feel terrible even even talking about it, and I'll have to whisper so my wife doesn't hear. Uh, it was something like 2600 bucks for for what ended up being uh, not much time. And okay. we, ha- we had to pay for the marinas, and we'll get into that. I mean, Bermuda's a lovely, beautiful place, but my God, it's, it's expensive. And, uh, and, and, of course, they have spots for us when we got there, part of the ARC, but we had to pay for it. And at 125 bucks a day... Uh, we lingered for a week. The other thing about a rally, and this is not the ARC's fault, is that uh, we made very good time getting to Bermuda. The rest of the fleet was uh, stuck because of the storm. They had waited uh, the BVIs, and they had, they had also waited in Virginia. There was another contingent of maybe eight or ten boats from Virginia that was coming out. Uh, they waited for the storm to pass. So they waited for three or four days. They didn't get in until a day before we were supposed to leave and make the crossing. So... It, uh, we were sitting there basically for seven or eight days just um, watching this beautiful wind pattern going across the Atlantic, which we weren't part of. And by the time we took off, there was very little wind initially. So if we had um, done it on our own, I think we would have left earlier and uh, had a little more relaxing uh, crossing at that point. Or at least we would have been sailing a little more in the early days. But again, you, you, you're, you're sailing to a schedule with a rally. And and uh, and that's not something that I, I generally try to do. And um, so it, it you know worked out that way. We did meet some nice people. Andy Shell's a hell of a nice guy. And it was uh, it was nice that way. But again, by the time we got to Bermuda, there weren't that other boat. We were the only boat there. Actually, there was one other boat when we arrived. And there wasn't really a hang until five days later and other boats came in. So. Yeah, it was expensive, Franz. Yeah, was, and, you, uh, and you know, when you uh, you bring that up, the, I, <laughs> of course, I, I made the mistake of going straight across the 40th when I sailed from Hampton, Virginia, uh, <laughs> across. And the reason, I'll be quite honest, the reason I didn't go to Bermuda was because uh-huh. I'd heard exactly what you said. It was extremely uh, expensive, delightful, but extremely yeah. expensive. And I thought, you know what, I'm I'm on a budget here. I'm, you know, I'm doing everything I can stretching this is you know in 97 and so I didn't go to Bermuda for exactly that reason but 
in hindsight, I wish I'd gone and made a, sh- a short stop because it would would have been a much better crossing for me had I gone down to Bermuda and then up. So yep, yep, yep. You got whacked, and that that's uh, exactly what uh, we did not want to happen. But again, yeah, it's a, it's a trade off. I mean, going going across going down is a trade off. But then again, we could have just skipped Bermuda because the weather was going so beautifully at that point and continued on our way, which mm-hmm. was. Sort of an option, but it wasn't because my father was flying into Bermuda. And uh, so my father joined up. Eric, uh, uh, the fourth crew member, flew back. He only did to Bermuda. And then my father joined in Bermuda, which I have to tell you was absolutely magical. I mean, it was just one of the most really uh, wonderful times in my life uh, spending the, the watches with my uh, 78-year-old father who uh, – who made the trip? It was, uh, and he continued for the whole rest of the trip. He did the Bermuda, the Azores, uh, through the Azores, and all the way to uh, Cadiz and Gibraltar, and uh, which is which is magical. Now he was the only family member that joined you on this. Well, he's the only one that joined from Bermuda to the Azores, but then my sister flew in to the Azores, and so we had uh, we had three Culpepper's aboard at that point for the, the last week, the last thousand miles to what ended up being Cadiz, but initially was going to be Gibraltar. So my, yeah, my sister flew out from, from Denver and, uh, <laughs> she traveled for 30 some hours to get to, uh, to get to, uh, the Azores and, uh, met up in Horta. Uh, she flew in the night before we took off, uh, to go to another Island. To and, Sarah, uh, I think she had to fly into to Sarah. Didn't she have to fly into that's to right. Sarah? And then a little uh, puddle jumper to uh, into Horta, mm-hmm. and then we uh, we got her there. She got her on the boat and proceeded then to sail back to Tessera. Right. <laughs> so, but she had a she had a, a great time, and it was it was fun having the three of us. We figured I finally figured the Culpepper's could outnumber the, uh, the other crew members. We weren't in any danger of mutiny, so uh, things were uh, <laughs> uh, things were great. So, uh, so the four original crew went all the way across the Atlantic with you, then, or the you, well, three it, original it, crew, right? Right, three original. The three of us did the entire trip. Okay, uh, Tom, Pierre, and myself. Um, yeah, Eric did the first leg. Then my father then picked up Bermuda. My father and I had done a, a Bermuda race uh, together uh, in '08, so uh, he had, he felt like he had been to Bermuda. So he was filling in the rest of the crossing, so he can legitimately say he crossed the Atlantic. And uh, so flying, and it was fortuitous that he flew into Bermuda because in one of the preps and uh, for the for the boat. Of course, the big safety issue is the EPIRBs aboard, and I felt I was prepared. I mean, I had the uh, life raft uh, packed with a, a tiny, tiny little EPIRB inside it, a personal EPIRB, and then I had a hydrostatic release, which is a water release uh, EPIRB attached to the boat. I also had one in the go bag, and you know, full medical kit. Go bag was filled with a bunch of stuff. I had checked the EPIRB probably six months ago. I mean, six months before the before the trip. And it seemed to work fine. We get to Bermuda and we have a safety inspection. Now, realize we've been through, you know, past the tropical storm, gotten to Bermuda, and he's fine. Guy comes aboard, he's checking everything, everything's great, checks everything, takes the EPIRB out, checks it, nothing. Battery's dead. Mm. <laughs> I had had it changed uh, three years ago. It should last for five years. I had a terrible feeling. I checked the other one, it's dead. I had no EPIRBs. Now, hopefully the one in the life, vest, uh, life uh, raft would have worked, but um, this was really, really bad. And um, I felt like a fool and, and ended up um, trying to buy an, uh, an EPIRB in Bermuda. Now, now, you would think 
that they would have lots of EPIRBs there, very expensive. But at that point, I was like, <laughs> have to have one. Uh, no, not one EPIRB was available in Bermuda. They don't keep them on the shelf because they're time sensitive, as it was explained to me. Uh, it was really amazing. The, the services there for, for uh, I think, for mega yachts is pretty good. But for the average cruiser, uh, it's not, not too good in terms of uh, just uh, equipment, especially compared to what we found in the Azores, which was pretty amazing. Uh, so uh, I had to get an EPIRB, and when I ended up calling back to my father saying, I need an EPIRB. You need to bring it. And he said, oh, okay, we'll see what we can do. And I called my local, uh, Jan and my local West Marine, and uh, who I had dealt with quite a bit. She was fantastic um, in prepping the boat. And she said, well, where's your father flying out of? And I said, Boston. She said, well, I have a friend of mine, uh, Barbara, who works at the, uh, the Woburn uh, store that's outside Boston. She can help you out. So I call her. She's trying to find an EPIRB. She has one. Now, how do we get it to my father, who's taking a bus down from New Hampshire? She takes the EPIRB and meets my father at a bus stop where he comes in, takes him into the, to uh, Logan to get on the flight, and, and he ends up being late for the flight uh, because he gets there about an hour and a half before, but they require to Bermuda two hours because there's an international flight. They don't allow him to board. Oh. So... This is, this is awful. He has the EPIRB on him, but he can't get aboard. The, uh, meanwhile, Barbara had waited outside. She ends up taking my father back to her house, and she goes back to work. He hangs out with a cat and dog at her house. Uh, he reads all day. She ends up the next morning driving him back to Logan Airport into, through traffic uh, in Boston to get on his flight, which he does. I mean— it was an amazing level of, of just service and just humanity uh, by Barbara there. And she was, it was fantastic. Again, it was uh, one of these times, and I'm sure you've done it, had it happen many times. You just meet somebody and uh, they just help you out. And that, that kind of, what do they call it? Like the, uh, the cruising karma or the, the sailing karma. You, know, you just kind of, you, you do a good deed and uh, people do good deeds back. And sometimes, uh, and this was one of the cases. I mean, she was she was terrific. Uh, my father, who was homeless almost for one night, uh, ended up having a wonderful evening. And he got on the flight and uh, flew to Bermuda. And we had an EPIRB. But, uh, and uh, from there on out, uh, hopefully uh, we had the potential to be saved. <laughs> you, you know, that's one of my big complaints about EPIRBs is they do not let you change the batteries yourself. And they should. I mean. Uh, well, I took it apart. I tried. I, I took it apart. And uh, it, it pretty much has a standard batteries in the inside to try to figure out how to do it. But they don't make it easy, and, no. it, and it could be easy. And I understand the reason why is because they don't want people you know, fussing with them. But again, uh, yeah, it, it was very, very frustrating. The battery ended up being fine. I tested the battery. When I, when I took the battery out of the battery was fine. It wasn't dead. Uh, something had happened on the inside of the thing. I, I've sent it back to uh, the people who installed the battery. Uh, something had shorted or something had happened to the uh, actual EPIRB, but it happened to both of them that were serviced at the same time. So eh, we'll find out what happens when I, when I hear back from uh, the people who have put the batteries in. So, Let me ask you a question, and mm -hmm. uh, because I, I know a lot of our listeners want to go sailing with you, Dan. What website did you use uh, when you were looking for your crew so, they, so people can find that website if they're interested in getting on a crew like yours? Oh, geez. Now I have to look it up. I think right. it was called uh, Ocean Ocean Opportunities or Ocean Cruising. 
you know what? I'll have to look that up, Franz. Okay, just I, send, I, I if, really you, if you get a chance, send it, send me a link, and I'll just stick it in the show notes. That'll be great. Yeah, it was it was um, it was a good. Yeah, again, it was a little like uh, online dating. You had to kind of go through a lot of the things, and uh, you know, you're 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 impressed on the people who who want to go, who don't have experience, or you also don't necessarily. I I wanted a crew. I wanted a young guy and a guy with experience, and if I had gotten both, would have been great. Um, I'm 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 fairly fit, and uh, Tom was is is very fit also for uh, being a old geezers in our mid fifties. But it was nice having a, a young crew member also, and, uh, and and also he said he could catch fish, which he didn't for about three thousand miles, which, <laughs> always, which always made it very entertaining because we we dragged this damn line for at least 3,000 miles without catching anything. And uh, finally, uh, towards the last week, he caught something, and, and uh, it was a, a happy moment aboard. We caught a, a beautiful tuna, but it was the source of a lot of ribbing for poor Pierre uh, all the time about fish. We usually start his watch uh, uh, with, uh, you know, still no sight of fish, Pierre, but uh, have fun. So it was, uh, it was fun. Talk to me about the food you ate on the crossing. Ah, okay. Well, uh I have a freezer aboard, which uh, we loaded up with. Um, now, Eric Wenberg came along with uh, lasagna. He and his mother got together a week before, his Italian uh, mother. Uh, they made pounds and pounds of lasagna, which he cut into very convenient, like six by six uh, squares that we, uh, and then he froze it and brought it to the boat and lined the inside of the, uh, the freezer with, uh, with that shaped. Uh, food and wrapped up. And then uh, my wife went to Costco and got a whole mess of casseroles uh, along those lines. Uh, and we filled up the, the freezer completely. It was perfect. Uh, and then we took a lot of uh, freeze-dried food because I had, in the uh, Bermuda race 2012 that I did, I did it with a good friend of mine, Stephen Dane, uh, Dr. Dane. You should see my medical kit on this trip. Franz, you wouldn't have believed it. I mean, I, I really could have done anything short of open heart surgery. I mean, the, 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 the kit that he brought along in the 2012 was damn impressive, bigger than our life raft. And uh, so he outfitted me for this, this trip and not only the medical kit, which I had to, uh, I, I think I left half of it in my basement uh, just because I, I did not want to do surgery at sea. And, uh, but the food he also had ordered from, for, for the 2012, he bought my previous boat and uh, my, my Pearson 35. And so, and, and he had been sailing for, for a few years and he was stepping up to the 35 foot. And he, uh, <laughs> he, he said to me after we bought the boat, he bought the boat. He said, well, I'd really like to do something. And I said, well, why don't you do a Bermuda race? So sure enough, uh, a few years later, uh, we did the double handed together in the Bermuda race and he prepared the boat with a food. Uh, he just went, went crazy with uh, freeze dried, uh, MREs, the military MREs that we used, and, and ended up being a, a brilliant move because the race, the, the 2012 race was the fastest race in the history of the Bermuda race, and that was because there were tremendous uh, uh, winds from the uh, northeast, and we were just cranking on, and that was a crossing of the Gulf Stream, I'll never forget. It, um, uh, the boat was just flying, and, and we had to eat uh, obviously. And, uh, it was very difficult to cook, almost impossible down below. And so we made these MREs and that basically kept us fed for the seven days it took us because after the wind blew the first couple of days, it died and we kind of drifted around for the last few days. So the MREs were great for that. The, the freeze dried. So 
the boat was loaded with a, a lot, a, just a lot of food. And, um, and actually it's sitting in Italy right now with probably, uh, you know, 30 packets of freeze-dried things, uh, tons of MREs left because we ended up, obviously, uh, they do have food in Italy. So uh, <laughs> we did discover that. Uh, beautiful food uh, and uh, wonderful food in Spain. So, and the Azores was a gas too. So uh, it was only at sea. Uh, we, we basically ate casseroles. Uh, more than anything else, uh, breakfast was cereal. We got the uh, the the milk that you can you can store the high temperature milk that's that's popular in Europe. But we were able to get some here, uh, and, and and the milk was great in Europe. By the way, that was uh, fresh milk is not something that they generally have. Pierre said that in France he grew up having this boxed milk uh, because unless you live near a dairy, you you don't get fresh milk. So uh, the boxes are very convenient, as I'm sure you found out, by stowing them anywhere, and uh, they'll last for months. So uh, the, pretty much the crossing was, uh, yeah, the casseroles, which were very simple to break in half. I have a microwave oven aboard. Well, that power, you got to have a microwave. So we just microwave it for eight or nine minutes, and uh, we're ready to go. It was very simple, uh, but uh, very efficient that way. Okay. So you got to the Azores. How long did you stay in the Azores, and did you do some road trips while you were in the Azores? Uh, no road trips, but we yeah we, we were only in two places in the Azores. Uh, the ARC was doing a, a, a tour through for about a week, and we ended up staying for about, I think, five or six days in, through the Azores, and basically two places, um, in Horta and then uh, Tercera, and there's Agra, which is the harbor there. And then we did go. We did take some tours um, around uh, a bus tour. We got a little scooters, uh, went around Tercera, which is a much larger island than Falia and, and Fial, and, and really terrific. A lot of towns. Uh, we were there during the time of uh, the running of the bulls uh, through the islands of the Azores. So every island has this uh, running of the bulls, and, and in Tercera, every town uh, basically sponsors a day in which uh, they get a few bulls to run through the streets. And uh, that's kind of a mixed experience. Uh, it was uh, uh, it, 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 each town, it, depending upon the wealth of the town, uh, you get a younger bull. So if a town, town has a lot of money, they can get a, say, a, a 5,000 euro bull, which will tear things up and it kills a few people every year. Uh, then, then the towns uh, get less and less. The bulls get older, they get slower, and uh, they get, uh, frankly, pretty sad looking. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's a little, I, I'm not a big fan of, of, uh, of, uh, I don't know, uh, torturing animals and the, 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 the running of the bulls is a little like that. They're, they're on long lines, uh, uh that they, they connect them so they, they don't run into the crowd necessarily, though they give them a lot of leeway and they want it to be exciting. And they're surrounded, at least the one that we experienced was, I think, a, a thousand year old bull, uh, someone told us, and that's a bull of a few years old maybe seven years old, and a little slower. Uh, the experience for me was, was very sad in a way, and I, I found myself really, really, really uh, rooting for the bull. I really wanted them to take out one of these, uh, you know, these, these teenage testosterone-loaded boys running around, uh, you know, slapping the bull and running in front of them, and, and uh, the whole thing was kind of sad uh, in that way. But, hey, it's part of the culture, and uh, the parties are great. Uh, surrounding them, uh, uh, the people were just fantastic. And the Azores, 
Uh, very, very friendly people, uh, welcome you to their house. Uh, while we were watching the Bulls, they'd, they'd run them, and then uh, this, this uh, firework would go off, bang, uh, that it was safe to go on the street. And then you'd walk on the street, and people would invite you in, you know, offer you drinks, uh, tell you the stories about, you know, previous times where the bull ran into their garden and, and gored up a few people. But uh, it was um, – Azores was really a terrific place. You, you hear about that a lot. From cruisers, I was very excited to be there. I wish we had spent more time. Uh, again, we were moving along. Uh, on the way back, I would love to go back to the Azores and uh, especially get my, my girls to, to experience it also. Uh, and Anyway, terrific time. Yeah, the Azores, I think, is a, is a place that's probably best you know, visited by land because there's only really two anchorages that I really figured out. One was in Tercera and one was in Horta. And when you were in Horta... Did you go paint your boat name on the uh, on the walkway? <laughs> Boy, did I want to! I, uh, I, I, it was raining off and on, <laughs> raining. So the the day it was nice and sunny, and so I I got the paint. I, I laid out a square, beautiful white square, ready to go, waiting for it to dry, waiting and waiting and waiting, humid, and then it started to rain, and then it rained for the next three days, and uh, it 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 ruined the entire uh, ability to uh, to paint. It was very frustrating to, to several crew members there uh, to, to uh, not be able to do it. But someone benefited from my white frame, I'm sure, uh, at, at some point in next cruisers. And, and you know, they last for, for a number of years, probably 10, 12 years, and they kind of wear down and you put something on top of another one. It, it, it really is really special and, and that, another reason we got to go back. So. Right. Right. I guess we should tell people that's a, that's a tradition. If you're a transatlantic sailor, when you stop in Horta, it's sort of expected that you uh, you paint a square on your boat. Now, when I was there, um, I jumped over the wall and painted my uh, boat name on the outside wall. So maybe it's still there. <laughs> you should have told me that before. <laughs> I, I would have checked it out. I would have taken the picture if it had been still there. Yeah, it, it is. It is actually really special when you, when you pull into Horta. Uh, yeah, you really feel like you've done something. Uh, you pull in, you pull up to the fuel dock for, for, for customs clearance in, and you just look around and yeah, it's one of those feelings of, I'm sure people feel on top of mountains or whatever, where you, you just standing there, you look at around, just, you know, pinch me. Am I really here after seeing all the pictures and reading all the blogs for years? Uh, I was staring out at this, uh, this really spectacular scene. So, uh, yeah, special. Okay, now, Dan, I'm going to break this interview up into a couple uh, segments, and we've gone about 45 minutes right now. I'm going to stop it, and we'll start a new episode right now. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts or comments, drop me an email, franz at medsailor.com. Also, do me a favor. Go into iTunes and give it a five-star review. And if you do own the ASA 101, 103, or 104 series, and you think it was worthwhile, or even if you didn't think it was worthwhile, will you post a comment in iTunes and in Amazon? I would appreciate that. If you have suggestions for future episodes, let me know. I have another interview coming up with Dan in about a week. I just have to get that edited and do the introduction and get it out to you. It takes longer than you think it does, guys. It doesn't sound like much, but it takes a long time to put out podcasts. All right, get out there and go sailing. Talk to you later. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. 
I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs> The introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983 and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character who played the character of Joel Goodson.